Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So we're recording this on November 14th, 2022, six days after the, the midterm elections delivered a result that I think a lot of people weren't expecting. Um, we are still waiting for results on which party will control the House. We've uh, just gotten re- Senate results over the weekend. Um, and it looks like the red wave that people were expecting has failed to materialize. So we're going to try to break down those results a little bit with a kind of politics in question on brand twist. It sounds like a superhero, the red wave. Kind of does. I'm just throwing that out there. It kind of does. Or a college mascot. Yeah, or a college mascot. He didn't show the red wave. He didn't show. I'm I'm trying to get a, a survey experiment into the field, and I've written red wave like a hundred times in the last hour. But we're going to start out by just asking a couple questions. So I want to start out, James, we'll, we'll start with you. What surprised you on Tuesday? That I was right. I think that's what surprised me. No, I, you know, were we all right? <laughs> we're all right. No. I'm always surprised when you two are right. <laughs> so I was asked on Tuesday morning when I went to the polls by my neighbor, what's going to happen? And I said three things. One, it's going to be a lot closer than we think. Number two, the House is going to be probably narrowly Republican and the Senate is going to be a toss up and the Democrats are probably going to hang on. Uh, although the Republicans could edge out a very small victory. And, and regardless, we're not going to know on election night who won. And I think I, I think I did pretty well on all of those. Was that the only prediction you made or did you make a bunch of different predictions to different neighbors so that at least one of them could be right? That's very smart. That's next 2024, Lee. 2024. The fact that you came in with three things is why political scientists don't have more friends. But yeah, let's, Lee, what, what, what do you got? Oh, man. So, so many surprises. It's always a surprise that we still have a democracy uh, and we're not in the streets fighting each other. And that mostly, I think everybody's accepted the results, although we shall see. I am surprised that not a single Senate incumbent lost, which I think is the first time that has ever happened in U.S. history. And Warnock could still lose. Well, right. Warnock could still lose. I think he'll win. But if he loses, that's true. Sorry to interrupt you, Lee. Lisa Murkowski also could still lose, right? She just would lose to another Republican. I think she's going to win that, uh, it seems to be. But it's true. She could lose. We don't know those results yet. But assuming Murkowski wins, which seems likely, and assuming Warnock wins, which I would say seems likely. Well, the first federal elections, nobody lost. No incumbents lost. That's true. I, I stand corrected. But I mean, the point, broader point is that given how dissatisfied everybody seems about the state of our politics, incumbents just keep getting reelected. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I know why that is. That's because people mostly think it's the other party that's the problem and everything is so polarized. But still, not a single Assuming Murkowski and Warnock hold on again, which seems uh, most likely uh, incredible incumbent reelection rate, 
And also, unless assuming Warnock wins, which again, I think is the most likely outcome, only one state will have flipped parties. And that shows, I think, how really calcified our politics are. And this despite the fact that there was so much money, something like $17 billion spent on the midterms, and all of it just wound up uh, effectively canceling itself out. Uh, I mean, it's it's really remarkable. All right. So I had some some things that really did surprise me, even though I was kind of in between the two of you on this. And I did. I told my students on Tuesday morning, I said, we've, we've been studying the 2000 election. So I said, big 2000 vibes. We're not going to know the results. And then I had this whole election uh, administration scenario spun out in my head in Pennsylvania. It did not happen. So one of my takeaways that I think is somewhat surprising is that so far, fingers crossed, we haven't had a major election administration kerfuffle of the sort of 2000 election kind. And also that, you know, it has been very peaceful. We have had concessions. I was a little surprised that Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels here in Wisconsin did did concede on Tuesday night um, after some of the, the rhetoric that he had been embracing during the election. You know, I think we've actually seen this weird return to normal with I, I, and with Lee that I I also said this to my class on Tuesday mornings. They can vouch for all this that I said, we're going to have spent, you know, this insane amount of money for the Senate to be exactly the same. And it's possible it won't be exactly the same. It's possible there will be a one seat change in terms of party control. Um, and it also is the case, I think, that these individuals matter. So it, it will, you know, potentially matter that J.D. Vance is representing Ohio and not Rob Portman. They're quite different figures. Potentially matter that that John Fetterman is in the Senate as opposed to some other Democrat who might have hypothetically have, have won somewhere. But yeah, the, you know, things really did revert to the status quo. Molly Ball has a good piece in, in Time that sort of talks about this as a status quo election at a time when people are notably uncomfortable with the status quo. But in addition to the kind of lack of administration problems or violence or threats. The other things that surprised me, there there are a few. One of them was Lauren Boebert almost losing her seat in uh, Colorado Third, which hasn't, hasn't been called yet, although she's pulled ahead. I wasn't even thinking about that race. Um, and I thought that was a kind of an interesting indicator. Yeah, it's not as deep red of a district as you would think, given who, who represents it. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so part of that is just that's on me um, for not having been paying that much attention. Um, so that surprised me. That surprised me a little bit. The other thing that I guess I don't know that I it was surprising, but I had sort of flagged was everyone the morning of Tuesday was talking about the three indicative districts in Virginia the second, the seventh, and the tenth, and only one of those, so these are three Democrats representing these sort of bellwether districts, and only one of them, Elaine Loria, and the, the most Republican of those districts lost her seat, Abigail Spanberger hung on, um, and then the one that was supposed to be like the indicator that the Republicans are having a really good night, uh, Jennifer Wexton, also hung on. And it's not that that fact surprised me, but I was actually pretty skeptical of that as an indicator I remembered in 2018 when the East Coast returns came in and people were kind of talking about how it looked like, oh, this blue wave isn't going to materialize. And then it's like, oh, no, as the country, you know, as the votes keep coming in and the rest of the country <laughs> reports its results, they actually look really different 
And in that case, it was Florida. In this case, Florida was was uh, really Republican again. But you know, I was surprised that that indicator worked. So I guess that's that's where I was wrong. I think in some ways, this election demonstrates that the nationalization of politics has fewer limitations than I had I had expected. So the next. Sorry, this is, has been like I've on, had so many post-election discussions, I forgot I'm supposed to host. That's not great. Uh, well, it's okay. I mean, the, the show practically hosts itself. Uh, yeah, the show hosts itself. So We're just along for the ride. <laughs> so what do you think are the most important results? And the nice thing about this sort of patchwork midterm election is we have lots of different results we can break down. What do you think is the, the most indicative of broader broader trends in politics are the most sort of consequential for how how politics develops. James, you want to kick us off? Well, in classic fashion, I think we can all cherry pick different happenings from last week and then use them to kind of reinforce our our kind of white whales uh, that we've kind of come back to time and time again. At least I'm going to do that. And in that fashion, one of my white whales being the kind of pushback against the the nationalization of American politics theme. And I think if you look at what happened last week, everybody wants to know what's the one thing that explains it. Why did this happen? Why is it this way? And then we as experts want to tell people that thing because it makes it easier for for us to tell them how things work. And after all, we're supposed to know. And that's how we have things like, say, polarization, for instance. We're polarized between a red and a, and a blue party, a red and blue America. It's cleanly divided. There is no overlap. And, you know, it turns out things are a lot messier than that. The same thing goes with uh, for Trump. I've heard a, you know, a lot about how Trump was the reason and all of this stuff about how Trump is dominating American politics. And, you know, Trump, I think, is, and I've said this before on, this, on our podcast, that he's more of a symptom than the cause of our kind of underlying political dysfunction that we have right now. And if you look at the candidates around the country, sometimes Trump candidates did well. Sometimes they didn't do too well. Sometimes uh, good candidate quality mattered. Other times it didn't. And I think what it ultimately boils down to and what it tells us is that we do not have two parties, one giant Republican Party and one giant Democratic Party. But we have 50 Republican parties and 50 Democratic parties, not counting the territories. Five, zero, one, one for each state. Yeah, I think the math's right on that. I'm going to defer to you on that, Lee. I think, you know, we're going to have to, to fact check that. But as far as I'm, I, you know, I don't know. There, there's differing opinions on how many states we have, but I think we have 50. Well, however many states we have. We have a Republican Party in each one, so far as I know, and a Democratic Party or a Democratic affiliate party if you're up in like North Dakota. But ultimately, each of these parties is different. They have their own officials. They have their own candidates. They have their own culture, their own voters, the own things that they care about. And yes, there are broad similarities. After all, that's why they're affiliating with one another at the national level. But if we don't take an approach to politics, whether that be what happens in elections or what happens in between elections, that can acknowledge this diversity and nuance, this fabulous nuance in, in the American electorate and in our politics, then I think we're going to constantly be surprised at events, both mediocre events and extraordinary events. And I think last Tuesday was a great example of that. All right. So, Bull, you're pushing back on the nationalization hypothesis. 
There's more more diversity, even though Republicans perform more or less the same everywhere based on the voter index, but maybe the Republican and they all vote the same. Well, I have the answer, the one answer for that, and I'll share it with you in a bit. Oh, okay. Let's keep listening here. <laughs> We're going to do, do the big, big uh, reveal at the end. So what was the most significant result? Well, clearly it was New York, uh, in which uh, Democrats underperformed. Uh, and the fact that uh, the state legislature and uh, Cuomo and, and Sean Patrick Maloney got a little bit too greedy in trying to draw a map that was too favorable to Democrats. And then they provoked the courts in the state to push back on that and then got a map that was more favorable to Republicans. And uh, that costs the Democrats the House, uh, that, that was by far the most significant result. Okay, so I'm, I guess, going to push back on that. I mean, that obviously, that's quite significant, but... I'm just being a little provocative here, so push back, please. You provoked me, Lee. I mean, that's a stand-in for the fact that it was really the courts that decided the control of the House and the decision of the courts to intervene or not intervene on behalf of of uh, plaintiffs in state legislative redistricting fights. So, yeah, I mean, I keep sort of hearing about this. It's, it's mostly New York. I've heard other sort of district-oriented redistricting arguments for how they shape the control of the House. And so on the one hand, I get that. And we, we do have a situation in which kind of analogous to the way elections are administered, the way that districts are drawn, all of that is, is done in large part by the people who have the stake in the outcomes. And like, that's just sort of the way that we choose to live our lives in this country. We could choose something else, Julia. Well, I, I know. I'm just saying that's... Okay, sorry. You know, that is how we have chosen up to this point. I'm going to mute you. Um, <laughs> we have chosen up to this point to live in this, in, in this way. But like, we're always going to have some institutional constraints, right? So the institutional setup is always going to have driven the result to some degree. Um... But so here I have a not particularly obscure set of what I think are, are significant results. I think that it's significant. And I'm trying to think in terms of substantive significance here, not symbolic significance. Um, even though I, lo I love to live my life in this sort of symbolic realm when it comes to elections. But I think that the, the substantive significance is that if it comes to pass that Democrats have won a single house uh, or single Senate seat um, that have they've picked up one Senate seat. Um, I think that might actually have some substantive significance. That will really shift uh, the power in the majority a little bit. And obviously, we still have to deal with the kind of super majoritarian norms in the Senate. But we have seen a situation in which, even for stuff that goes through reconciliation, that that Mansion and Cinema have this critical importance. And so, changing those margins does kind of matter. Um, let's see. The second sig substantive significance, and I'm going to stop saying that f phrase after this, is the loss by this group of election-denying secretaries of state. And this doesn't mean the country's out of the woods on this election denial narrative. And one of the one of these secretaries of state won in, in Indiana, but most of them went down. They went down in competitive states. And I think that's obviously going to be really important in terms of thinking about the results in 2024. And then finally, I think that for whatever reason, Ron DeSantis's victory 
in Florida is really going to kind of like ride the cusp of symbolically and substantively significant because it's for some reason really become the narrative of last Tuesday night as far as Republicans. I think Ezra Klein had some really good points on his podcast about other governors who also won re-election very handily and are not being heralded as the ideological futures of their parties, from Jerry Paulus in Colorado to Mike DeWine in Ohio, another Republican. Um, but for whatever reason, DeSantis has been the narrative, and I think that opens up new space in 2024. And it's not that I want to talk about 2024, but it's coming, and people are going to talk about it, and I think that's significant. Um, if I can have a bonus significance. She's running. Yes, in the bonus round. Are you running? Four things that are the most important result is here in Wisconsin, I... I don't think anyone really expected Mandela Barnes to win, and he didn't win. He came closer, actually, than I had expected. You scared me. I was like, I I swore that Johnson (laughs) pulled that one out, but he said that. I was like, man, should I be commenting on this? Load and reload. So, um, yeah, he didn't win. Um, I expected the race to be called a lot earlier on Tuesday night than than it was. Barnes came a little closer, and the race was called on Wednesday morning, but... The reason that I want to highlight this very expected loss to an incumbent by a you know somewhat inexperienced challenger who didn't run a phenomenal campaign is that I, I do want to highlight a couple of places have been commenting on this that we still have you know, very few African American senators we have no black women in the Senate um, and Barnes just sort of fits back into that pattern um, having run to represent a, a predominantly white state. He did quite well, given that. But, you know, we still have, when we think about the status quo in the Senate, the the racial and gender picture, I think, is is worth bringing up. So our our kind of last piece to to really talk about here is we're thinking about these results. We've talked about what our takeaways were, what's what was surprising, what was most important. But really, you know, we're not an election analysis podcast. We're an institutions podcast. So I want to get everyone to kind of think about what is the role of institutions in this election result? And Lee, I think I'm going to let you kick it off here because I know you have a lot to say about redistricting and institutions. And then I'll kick it over to James. And elections are institutions, aren't they? Well, I mean, the, the striking thing about this election is how few districts and how few states were competitive and how few voters were really up for grabs. So we think we're having these big national elections in which the entire nation decides, America decides. But really, we're having a contest over a handful of states and within those states, a handful of voters who are either uh, marginal voters who we, we don't know whether they're going to turn out or not because they're not really paying much attention to politics, but maybe if they feel it's really important or if somebody mobilizes them, they'll vote. And so a lot of people are making a lot out of the fact that young people seem to have voted at maybe slightly higher than typical rates, and that may be important. And then there's also these undecided voters, the swing voters. Everybody wants to to understand what makes swing voters tick. And we put put out a, a report, New America, that we'll link to in the show notes about undecided voters. And turns out we have no idea what makes them tick because they're all somewhat unique and they don't move or 
break in any sort of consistent ideological or issue-based way. And yet we want to impose these narratives that, well, undecided voters clearly broke based on these issues because these are the four questions we asked in the exit poll, although I do love that they asked about democracy in the exit poll and it was important. But it's really strange to me how we really have these elections that are just decided on these very tiny margins by the people who pay least attention to politics. And just like, is that really (laughs) how we ought to be doing democracy in this country? Does that make sense? I'm not sure it does. So whatever, as somebody who is happy that Democrats did better than expected and, you know, sees that as a good sign. I I also think it's worth understanding how much that victory is just really based on kind of vibes, uh, not really on anything particular. And frankly, voters don't really like either party at this point. And it's just, it's not so much that the Democrats did better than expected. It's that Republicans, I think, underperformed, but it's hardly inspiring. So that's how I think our institutions decided our elections by giving us very few competitive seats and leaving the decision to the people who pay least attention. Uh, And thank goodness they decided in favor of the party that I tend to support, but uh, I'm not sure that that's the best way to be doing democracy. Putting all your cards on the table, Lee. Yeah, well, you know. The, I like it. I like it. Well, all, all my cards are, you know, it's better to better put the cards on the table than uh, in the toilet bowl. So you got to know when to show them. Yep. Know when to fold them. And know when to flush them. <laughs> so I really like this question because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make another prediction. Bold. That's bold. I'm going to do it. I'm putting my cards on the table as well. And when Julia's running for president in 2024 and Lee and I were commenting on your race. President of the podcast, yes. We'll, we'll come back and we'll play the clip. And we should do that, play clips of things that we've said on past podcasts and see how they last, how they fare. But my prediction and- Why would we do that? Because <laughs> it's fun. Commenting on our old selves. Yeah, how, what, we, what we've learned. I typically am like, man, Lee and Julia are really smart. Yeah. That's why people keep listening. But thinking about institutions, and, and institutions as kind of four walls and a ceiling and a thermostat, right? And like a place, a brick and mortar institution. The House and Senate were on the ballot last week. We have, we're going to have new lawmakers who are coming in. And my prediction is that next Congress is going to operate exactly like last Congress. It's the same. It's going to be a lot of incremental small ball type politics. It's going to be a lot of hand wringing over what happened in last year in this, when we're there, last year's midterm elections, which was last week. And then it'll be a lot of looking forward, hopefully to, and longfully towards 2024, when another election will appear on the horizon to ultimately vanquish our enemies, conquer our foes, and take us off into the sunset. When in reality, what ultimately happens is that you elections are important, sure, but what you really need and what you have to have, because elections alone can't do it, you have to have a lot of action, a lot of people trying to do things, pushing back against one another, having debates and arguments in between elections. I think if the House Republicans hold on, they're going to be a very, it's going to be very narrow majority. We know that. 
regardless of who's in control. And it's a very narrow majority in, in the Senate. And those two majorities, regardless of which party is the one controlling the majority, is going to pretty much operate the institution and manage the institution just like the one before it did. And, I, and it's not, I like to be a little bit more optimistic, a little bit more cheerful, a little bit more um, hopeful. And, I, and I, I genuinely am. But I think that ultimately, we have to come to terms, we have to come to grips with the fact that elections are not going to save us. They are a, a key point in the process. But your calls, my calls, our calls, whatever that may be, does not end on election day. It carries on. And you may have a bad night on election day. You may have a great night on election day. But that doesn't mean you have, you're off for the next two years. You got to suit up, get into the arena. And you got to fight like hell to try to win and hope that you defeat the people you oppose and they don't win. And in, in the end, what's ultimately going to happen is compromise because that is how it has always happened. Hold on. Hold on. How are we going to get compromise? Uh, I mean, the Republicans are going to uh, probably have a narrow majority. McCarthy will be God knows how he'll manage that if he even manages it. Uh, there'll be so much confrontation. Republicans have no interest in, in in meeting Democrats. Democrats have no interest in meeting Republicans. Everybody's gaining, uh, a angling for total control of the chamber. Or is that or is that your point that nobody actually wants to do anything? Yeah, it's my point. Look, if Republican, what's going to happen is McCarthy, if he's the speaker, is going to come in and tell the rank and file. He's going to say, "We only have like a one, two, three, four, five seat majority." We have to be careful. We have to be smart. We can't do this. We can't do that. Because if we do, we may lose our like those handful of votes. This is incidentally exactly what Pelosi is telling AOC about the Green New Deal after 2018. We can't push too hard or we're going to lose our votes. We may lose control of the chamber and then the other clowns are going to come in and take over. And then the republic's truly going to be in danger. And so what they do is they use the prospect of failure in the next election to get the outliers, the, the extremes, the left and the right, to not push as hard as they ought to. And then they try to play it safe behind closed doors, negotiate deals that don't divide their party in public, even though the party is divided on, on both parties are divided internally on literally every single major issue. And then we scratch our heads and we wonder why nothing ever happens. When in reality, if you come out swinging, you try to win. You try to use the government funding bill as leverage. The you know maybe there's a shutdown. Maybe there's not. The voters get to pay attention. They say, "Wow, look at that. We really like what's happening here." And this does, I think, also align with some of the election returns. If you look at some of the the seats in uh, the the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, and I, off the top of my head, maybe like Texas 15, but. Ultimately, you have these candidates in very competitive districts, and they're not running to the center. They're running away from the center. And who wins that ultimately is it depends on the issues that the voters care about in that particular race, in that particular district. But I guess my point is we, we ought not to be afraid of a battle, a struggle, a debate, an argument, because that is how we both transcend our own narrow view of reality and get a better conception of reality in the round. But it is also how the people hold their representatives accountable. You know, it's, it, it seems to me, it just this is slightly off topic, but we have a lot of democracy in danger crowd. And, and they're breathing a sigh of relief after the elections, according to the stories that I've read. But yet not one of them has even has acknowledged that lawmakers who were voted out by voters in last week's elections have returned to Congress this week to cast votes on things that they intentionally delayed until after the voters replaced them. 
And it's that I think that is just a, it highlights how much we have forgotten about what happens in between elections. But everybody got reelected. No, you had a lot of retiring members who were coming back to I cast mean, votes. You had a lot of incumbents. There were incumbents that were defeated, though, that have coming back to cast votes. I mean, a few in the House, but this is a pro even among the pro democracy crowd who which ostensibly all no, no lame duck Congress. But no, my point is that even among the pro-democracy crowd that ostensibly ought to be concerned about what happens not only in elections, but also in between elections, has almost, it appears has forgotten that it's not just what happens in elections, that, it, that the things in the between matter. And I think that what we're going to see is that nothing is going to change. And I think that should be a sign. Calcified politics. But it's not, it's, but it's for a different reason. I'm not sure what that reason is. Julia. But I'm going to defer to Julia. She can, she can tell us. No, I don't know if I am going to tell you. Although I think, I think I sort of agree with James, which is alarming. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about, though, is I think this election maybe moved a little bit in the direction of politics and policy being somewhat aligned. But nevertheless, you see a sort of disconnect between politics and policy. And I think I've brought this up on the podcast before, but it's become this sort of like standard expectation that nothing gets done before an election. And that elections are just like, you know, you can't, you can't vote on anything because there'll be some way that voters can use that against you, which is specifically saying that the other campaign will use that against you, right? So, I and, and that was not always the case. I love pointing out to people the Civil Rights Act was passed in the summer of 1964, right in the middle of election season. That's really difficult to imagine now. Well, it was also extremely popular to two-thirds approval within both parties. It did. So now we don't have anything like that, right? Yeah, but Mike Mansfield, the majority leader, puts that on the floor in what March of that year. He thinks he that this is going to destroy his party, this issue. His party is deeply divided on civil rights. He puts it on the floor anyway in a presidential year in March. We are usually supposed to be doing budget resolutions. Uh, McConnell and Schumer won't even put a budget resolution. Nobody knows what's in a budget. It's just a bunch of numbers. Yeah, but I mean, keep in mind the context of that. It's not, I mean, I mean, Kennedy's been assassinated. This is his legacy. Right. I mean, there's a lot going on there that's not happening now. There's always a lot going on and never like it's never. Yes. Two different situations are never totally comparable. But I think we all agree that we now live in a situation in which elections are considered to be obstacles to getting things done. And that hasn't always been the case. It wasn't always automatically you know, assumed that in an election year, you can't pass any major legislation. But that's not the main point I wanted to make, although it's it's sort of related, I think, because, okay, so just to, to really back up and think on kind of macro level about, about midterm elections, you know, one of the things that I've been sort of kicking around over the last year or so is the fact that you have, if you think about past midterms and particularly past midterms for Democrats, there's like no, there's no policy roadmap for Bill Clinton is like floundering around on policy and, you know, the Democrats lose big. And then in 2010, it's passing the Affordable Care Act and the Democrats lose big. So it's like, okay, what's the path for <laughs> Biden? And obviously this, in this case, you have um, very close margins, but in the end, quite a bit of legislation that gets through. But I think that instead, so my big election take I just published on, on Grid News is essentially that what the big difference is this time, the reason why this election is, is going to join the, the 1998 and 2002 
canon of very modest losses in this case um, for the president's party, despite pretty unfavorable conditions in a lot of ways, is that there wasn't really any kind of national movement to connect big national concerns with local concerns to explain exactly what it was the president was doing wrong and offer an alternative. And I think that to the extent that as we're thinking really broadly about what institutions are, what we're actually looking at here is this sort of weakness and presidentialization of na- of you know first parties and now the kind of broader movement within the Republican Party. It's all Trump. Trump has kind of sucked all the air out of the room in the GOP. He is not a team player. And to the extent that he was the energy behind the movement that was kind of animating the, the Republican Party, it wasn't strategic. It wasn't about mobilization. It wasn't about coalition building. And those are the, the critical factors. So for a long time, we thought about midterms as this kind of automatic process, which voters just automatically decide they don't like the party in the White House no matter what. Um, but if you actually look at these examples in more contemporary years, 1994, you've got uh, the Gingrich movement, which had been working on this for years. You've got 2010, you've got the, the Tea Party. 2006, you've got the anti-war movement. 2018, you've got the resistance and indivisible and the kind of anti-Trump movement. This is grassroots organization. And this year, you don't have that. And I think that we ought to really be thinking a lot about the mechanism by which voters are brought to the polls, the mechanism by which voters are not only told what the incumbent administration is doing wrong, but what the out party will actually do to fix it. And that's where I think that institutions matter. Well, I, I think I mean, in that respect, I mean, Trump hanging around uh, makes it harder for Republicans to actually offer a competing vision because in 2018, Democrats could just say, you know, well, we'll, we'll do whatever Trump's not doing and Republicans in 2010 could run against Obama. Democrats in 2006 could run against an unpopular war. I mean, Biden is unpopular, I guess, but he's, you know, kind of banal in the sense that he hasn't made himself the central figure of U.S. politics. The banality of Biden. Yes, the banality of Biden. So I think it's just, I mean, to your point, I mean, Trump's just taken up so much oxygen that it's really hard to build a, an opposition movement because an opposition movement depends on there being a bit of a blank slate on what would it mean for Republicans to have power. So it's not so much that Republicans need to offer an alternative, it's that they need to offer a a blank enough slate that people can project their hopes and dreams onto the opposing party. And I think that was where they really failed this election. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it makes it very, very backward looking. And I think that can be a really, a really damaging force in politics to be too, too backward looking. And so that's, I guess that's sort of my institutional diagnosis is the presidentialization of everything aided by, aided by Trump. All right, so we're going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.